All right, good evening, everybody. If you want to go ahead and find your places, we will uh, we'll get started. I say find your places because everybody seems to sit at exactly the same place uh, every week. All right, uh, tonight we continue our study in the book of Romans, and we've made it all the way to chapter 13, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 7. And the title of our lesson, we're going to be here for two weeks, um, is Submission to Government. Now, I, you know, you've heard me say this, I believe the Bible is, is, is relevant for every aspect of our lives, but I cannot think of a, a passage of Scripture that's more relevant today than Romans 13, 1 through 7. Um, uh, you know, there's just so much going on in, in co- our country and other countries around the world that affects Christians and decisions that we have to make. And so this is, uh, this, this is uh, going to be very uh, relevant to us. Now, I want to start here. Uh, back in, from 2009 to 2014, uh, Kathy and I uh, worked with the youth group here at River of Life. So this is what, going on about eight years ago. And um, every Sunday night, I would come here and I would do a teaching for the, all the teenagers. And um, uh, so, you know, that, we did that for about, about five or six years. Well, in June of 2011... I did a teaching called uh, American Idols. So this is some of my slides I pulled out of that teaching from about, about 11 years ago. And what I was trying to get across to the teenagers is I was asking the question, does America have idols? Now, most of us, when we think of idols or idolatry, we think of those little, you know, little, uh, little statues that somebody puts on their, their, their mantle or something like that, and they pray to them and all of that. But... But real, sometimes idolatry can be different than that, and it can be very subtle, okay? And, and I was trying to show them that, and so in order to show them that, I used the example of country music. Now, country music is unique in the sense that, you know, a lot of country music is very popular in the Bible Belt. Uh, it's very, you know, a lot of these artists grew up in church. They're very familiar with with, with Christianity and God and, and, you know, the whole thing, right? So a, a lot of times, for example, you know, country music artists, they'll do gospel albums, right? And they'll, they'll record a gospel album. And the other thing that's very common with them is they will, um, <clears throat> they'll sometimes on the same album, they'll have, they'll record amazing songs like Amazing Grace, right? And on the same album, they'll record songs like Tequila makes, your cl- makes Her Clothes Fall Off, right? On the same album. And what I was trying to show the, the young people is that there's something wrong with that. You see, what country music is doing is they're promoting, at, at the very least, a false picture of God. At the very most, they're promoting a false God. It is a God made in our own image. It's a God that loves America and mamas and babies and happy endings. And, and that, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But it's a God, you'll notice, that never judges. It's a God that'll let you sing about Him and amazing grace and then go turn around and sing about sex and drinking and carousing and all these other subjects and He just doesn't seem to care. 
In other words, it's a God that doesn't hold you accountable. You just, hey, as long as I sing Amazing Grace, I can go sing about all these other things. And let me say, sometimes they even call this God Jesus. But my point to the young people that night was that's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. Like I said, at the very least, it's a false picture. My God, my God of the Bible, holds me accountable for sin. The God of the Bible is a God that judges. The God of the Bible is a God that wants us to to live holy and upright lifestyles. So that was my lesson. And guess what? They got mad at me. I mean, they really got mad at me. Some of them told me that, that, that they did not like me talking about their music. Now, you can understand that, right? I mean, as long as people get up here and they tell you what you want to hear, nobody has a problem with that. But when somebody starts talking about something that you hold near and dear to your heart, they're, they're kind of attacking the sacred cow. Everybody with me? Now, here's the thing. and why, This is why I bring this up tonight. We all have sacred cows. We all have things in our life that maybe we've believed for a long time. We've all had things in our life that we really don't want anybody to challenge. And when somebody does challenge those things, we can get a little upset. Okay? Now, why am I telling you this? Because I want you to buckle your seatbelt. Okay? Because if you've got some sacred cows, I'm probably going to step on them over the next two weeks. Now, I'm not doing that on purpose. I'm not trying to be, um, uh, you know, I'm not trying to stir things up just for the sake of stirring things up. But the Bible says what the Bible says. There's just no way around it. And sometimes what the Bible says, it reminds me of the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about the false prophets and the people would say, tell us things we want to hear. Tell us what we want to hear. Don't be like them guys and tell us all this stuff we don't want to hear. Tell us what we want to hear. Tickle our ears. But we we can't do that, right? We have to go by what the Bible says. So again, uh, we're going to be two weeks here. This is very important what we're going to deal with. We're going to... We're going to uh, talk about, especially next week, a lot of really important stuff. And, and we're going to talk about things like vaccine mandates and, and, and things like that, how you, should, how you should deal with those things, not from an emotional standpoint, but from a scriptural uh, standpoint. Okay, so that kind of brings us to our lesson. So let's start. The uh, emperor of Rome uh, from 54 A.D. to 68, AD, 68 A.D., was a man by the name of Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. Now, that's about as Roman a name as you can possibly... As you see, I think they just took every big Roman name and put it together. But we know him by the name of Nero. Now, most people know who Nero is because of this fire in Rome. In AD 64, uh, the city of Rome caught fire. And it burned for several days. Much of the city was destroyed. A lot of people died. And it, it, there was a rumor going around that Nero or his people started the fire. Now, you may think, well, why would, a, why would an emperor start a fire? Well, the reason he did it, they say he did it, was because there was a lot of buildings that he wanted to get rid of. He wanted to build his own buildings and put his name on them. So he just had these people start fires and burn down all this, you know, half of Rome. So the rumor started going around that Nero had started this fire, and he... He needed to get rid of that. He needed a scapegoat. He needed to blame somebody. So he picked out the Christians. Now, we know this because one of the Roman senators, a guy by the name of Tacitus, 
was a historian, and he wrote this in his uh, book called Annals. He said this. It says, To get rid of the report that he had started the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Most of you know, you've heard the story that he put Christians on a pole and set them on fire to light his gardens at night, right? So this, this is the kind of thing that he, that he did. That's what most people know about Nero, okay? But there's a lot more to this guy's story. His first wife was his sister. So right off the bat, he's got incest checked off. This guy's insane, you're going to see. He divorced her because he, she was barren. She couldn't have any children. So he married his mistress. Well, there's, he's got adultery checked off the list right there. Uh, her name was Sabina. She died in 65 A.D. when he kicked her to death while she was pregnant with his child. So right now he's got murder and infanticide already checked off the list, right? Now it gets worse. After marrying his third wife, later that year he married a, a, a young boy named Sporus. Um, and I, I see some children out here, so I want, you guys can read what that says, right? Are you with me? Uh, and during their marriage, when they appeared in public, uh, Nero would dress as a man and Sporus would dress as a woman. Um, later on, he married another man, a guy by the name of Pythagoras, and in their marriage ceremony, uh, Nero dressed as the bride and Pythagoras dressed as the man. Now, you know, in, a, in a something that's not a shock to anybody, this guy committed suicide in 68 AD. He was one messed up dude. Um, so here's this guy, Nero, and here's why I bring this up. Nero was not only this incredibly evil and immoral man, he was literally clinically insane. It was during the reign of Nero that Paul wrote the book of Romans. He was the emperor, he was the Caesar, he was the ruler, the president, when Paul wrote these words, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now watch verse 2 very closely. Who, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes." For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And then he sums it up in verse 7. Therefore, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Now, knowing what you know about Nero, can you, you would have expected him to write something else. But he almost wrote the exact opposite of what we would, would think. Now... I want to first address, we're going to address several things tonight. Why does Paul take up this theme of government and civil authorities? 
Well, this is something that we all have to deal with. Do you remember a few months ago, we talked about this principle in the Christian life that we call the pilgrim versus the indigenous principle. And what we mean by this is there's, there's always this tension in the New Testament for Christians. In other words, we are born into this world. We live in this world. We love in this world. We, we work in this world. We, I mean, we exist in this world. We pay our taxes in this world. Everything, we're, we are, in, in a sense, citizens of this world. But at the same time, what does the Bible say? We're not of this world. We're strangers. We're just passing through. This is not our home. So there's this tension, right, between these two things. Am I, am I a citizen of this world or am I a citizen of heaven? You know, where does my loyalties really belong? And you see that all the time. For example, you'll hear Paul say, Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to the world. But then in 1 Corinthians, he'll say things like, become all things to all men. So you see both of them. It's what we call the, uh, the pilgrim versus the indigenous principle. Jesus said in John 17, when he prayed for his disciples, he says, they are in the world, but they're not of the world. Now, that's... Good, and we all know that, but how does that work itself out in practice? In reality, everyday living, how does that, how does that tension work itself out? By the way, the same question came to Jesus in Mark chapter 12, some 25 years earlier, prior to Paul writing Romans 13. You remember the Pharisees came to uh, Jesus and they said, does, does your master, or they came to Jesus and said, do you pay taxes to Rome? And you know, Jesus is just so cool. He's got the coolest answers in the world. He said, you got, a, you got any money on you? And one of them said, yeah, and he pulled it out. And, and Jesus said, whose picture is on that? And the man said, Caesar. And Jesus said the famous statement, well, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render unto God what belongs to God. And it said they marveled at him. They, they marveled at his answers. So Jesus had to deal with that. Do you pay taxes? And the answer was, yeah, we, we do. Later on, the Pharisees came and, and asked uh, uh, Peter, does your master pay the temple tax? You remember that? And he said, go down, to the, go down there to the sea, cast a line in, you're going to catch a fish in his, in his mouth, there'll be two coins. That's one for you and one for me. Go pay, your, go pay your taxes. So you can see how these questions are going to naturally arise amongst Christians. How should we think about Caesar or in our day and time, how should we think about our president? Do we support him or do we not support him? Do we, uh, do we submit to him or do we not submit to him? Do we pay our taxes to him or do we not pay our taxes to him? Where, how does this work itself out in practice? This is how relevant this script, the same scripture that was written in the time of Nero is just as relevant today, and it has been in every decade and every century in between. So you can see Roman Christians back then, by the way, who are living in Rome, who have been persecuted, have, been, have seen maybe their brothers and their sisters or their aunts or their uncles put on a pole and set on fire. And they're wondering, well, how, how do, I, do, I, do I take up a sword and rise up against Rome? Do, do I try to resist people who are killing us? Or at the very minimum, what about people who are, or governments who are making laws to legislate against my beliefs? Should I resist? Should I rebel? These are the questions that Paul is dealing with. Now, by the way, these are not theoretical questions. I see people sometimes like to 
you know, get into Scripture and have arguments and, and debate because they see it as all theoretical. This isn't theoretical at all. In fact, these questions have always been relevant, not just throughout history as a whole, but specifically in American history. Our country was born because we overthrew an existing government. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Our country was born because we overthrew a government. We resisted and we rebelled. Yet Romans 13, 2 says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So that's a question, and you don't have to answer that right now, but it's something to think about. Were our founding fathers obeying Romans 13? Or was America born because they were disobeying Romans 13? By the way, a hundred years later... Well, in fact, let me back up a minute. Let's make it a little more personal. I want you to think about this. If you were a Christian in 1776, what would you have done? Would you have supported the Declaration of Independence? Would you have supported the Revolutionary War? Even though Romans 13 is staring you in the face, you've got a decision to make. Go fast forward 100 years later. Now the South decides they don't want to be part of the Union anymore. They don't want to be part of this federal government. The same question uh, arises. Do we resist? Do we rebel or do we submit? So I ask that question. If you were a Christian in the South in 1860, would you have supported secession? Would you have reported, uh, uh, supported this war? Or would you have backed off and said, I, I cannot do that in light of Romans 13? Go a hundred years later. Now you're in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And you've got, uh, you've got people that have got issues with the laws of the land. And they rise up in peaceful civil disobedience. Was that right? Was that wrong? If you were a Christian in the 1960s, would you have supported civil disobedience in light of Romans 13, which says, do not resist the civil authorities? These are all good questions. Sometimes, the sad thing is, many of us haven't never even thought about these questions. We don't entertain them in our own life. We just, we just assume things are a certain way. But what I want you to do is I want you to think about things and think about... Because the, these are all... And by the way, this doesn't stop. It's only going to get worse. They're going to continue to arise because we know that both biblically and historically, governments don't always do what's right. In fact, they don't always reward the good and punish the bad. Sometimes they do the exact opposite. They reward the, the bad and punish the good. So you're always going to have these questions arise. By the way, we also know for certainty that there are times that it is right to disobey. For example, in Acts 5, chapter 28, I mean, Acts 5, 28 and 29, the authorities tell uh, Peter and John, do not preach in the name of Jesus. Don't do it. And they both, they looked at him and said, Peter, and said this, we must obey God rather than men. And they went out and preached in the name of Jesus. So we know there are times that civil disobedience is right and something we should do. And next week we'll talk more about when I can give you some very... I can pretty much take all civil obedience and show you what's the common thing between every single one of them, what makes it right and what makes it wrong. 
Now, here's the interesting thing. In tonight's passage, I don't know if you noticed this, Paul tells us, submit to the government, and he gives us absolutely no exceptions. Now listen, Paul's a smart guy, right? He knows that there are times when, like for example, if the government tells you you can't preach Jesus, you're going to have to disobey. If the government says you can't witness, you're going to have to disobey. If the government says you can't meet together to worship Jesus, then you're going to have to disobey. He knows that. He's a smart guy. But yet, yet, he gives us this passage and he gives us absolutely no exceptions. None. Zip. Zero. And we'll explain that here in just a minute. For now, there are six questions that we're going to ask and answer tonight. And we're going to do three tonight and we'll do three next week. The questions are these. Number one, why are, why are we called to submit? Why, why is it so important to God that we submit to civil authorities or the government? That's the first question. Question number two, does the command to submit include evil rulers or evil governments? What if I lived in a, in a communist state? What if I lived in, in North America? I'm sorry, in, in, in North Korea. Does the same thing go for me that it would here? So that's the second question. Number three, why doesn't Paul list any exceptions? He knows there are exceptions. Why doesn't he list them? We'll, we'll get that one tonight. Next week, we're going to cover these three. Does God sometimes approve of us not submitting to the very authority he put in place? Number five, in what situations is civil disobedience the right thing to do? And if it is the right thing to do, what does it look like? How far can you go? Can you take your government to court? Can you, can you walk a protest line? Can you take up arms against them? What does that disobedience look like? We'll cover that um, next week. Now, again, I'm going to mention this again. These are not theoretical questions. Listen, if you are a Christian tonight living in North Korea or living in China, just being an obedient Christian means you're breaking the law. Just to be an obedient Christian means you're breaking the law. And by the way, don't kid yourself for a moment this isn't happening in America. It's happening in America right now. I'll give you a couple of examples. Many of you may have heard about this guy. His name's Jack Phillips. Uh, he owns the Masterpiece Cake Shop in uh, Lakewood, Colorado, right outside Denver. And uh, he got in trouble because he refused to make a cake for a gay wedding. Okay? Now... Here's the problem. Well, I say here's the situation. He didn't refuse them service. In fact, these two men had been customers of his for years. He was glad to sell them a cake. He had no problem with that. In fact, he would even make them a wedding cake if that's what they wanted. What he would not do is decorate it the way they wanted. He would not put the message on there that they wanted him to put on there. He said, that, nope, that's just, I can't do that. That would be, I'm morally, that would, that would be morally, I can't do that morally. So they said he was discriminating, they fined him, they tried to shut down his business, they, I mean, it's been, it's been, I don't remember when this happened, um, several years ago, but that guy has been through it, man. It's been all the way to the Supreme Court, it's just been, it's been a complete mess. And he's not the only one. I'll give you another one, Ocean Grove Camp Meeting. This is a Methodist-run venue in New Jersey. Okay, Methodist run. They refused to host a gay wedding. 
refused to host it. So they were fined. Um, they, they, they've got discrimination uh, cases pending against them, and they lost their tax-exempt status because they would not do that. They would not submit to civil authority. So there, it's going on in America. This is just a couple of things, but it is happening, and it will continue to happen where uh, Christians are going to have to make a decision, do I submit or do I resist? Do I submit or do I resist? Okay? So let's look at the three questions that we've got here tonight very quickly. Number one, why submit? Why does he call us to submit? Well, Paul gives us four reasons. First of all, he says this, their authority comes from God. Look at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For, and that word means because, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, now that is a blanket statement. Paul says, I don't care who's president, I don't care who's the dictator, I don't care who's the emperor, there is nobody in authority that that authority is not given by God. God put them there, okay? That's just a blanket statement. doesn't matter if they're good, doesn't matter if they're bad, they are there because God uh, put them there. So we are called to submit to their authority out of, out of reverence for Him, not necessarily because we respect them, not because we agree with them. We, we submit to them because they are there under the authority of God. 1 Peter 2.13 says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution. So we do it because God put them there. Not, again, not because they earned it, not because they deserve our honor or respect, we do it because we believe that they're there uh, because of, of God's will. Number two, resistance is rebellion against God. We read it in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities that God has put in place, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Number four, or number three, they are there for our good. Romans 13, 4, for he is God's servant... Remember, and this is hard to get by. Who is the leader when Paul wrote this statement? Nero. One of the most evil, corrupted, immoral, clinically insane people that's ever lived. And Paul says, he is God's servant for your good. Now, how can Paul say that? How can Paul say that? Well, what Paul wants us to understand is that even bad government is better than anarchy. Okay, I heard somebody say one time, sometimes we might be better off not having government. No, no, no. Please trust me on that. If you want to find out how that's working out, go to San Francisco, go to Seattle, go to New York and try to walk down the street. You see, when the government pulls back their hand, let me tell you what happens. Anarchy breaks out. Chaos breaks out. Are our civil authorities perfect? Are our governments perfect? No. No, of course not, but I want you to imagine for a moment having no government at all. None. Can you imagine if you called 911 and nobody came? There's no police, there's no firemen, there's no National Guard, there's no ambulance service. There, there's only uh, gangs roaming and stealing and murdering and fighting. Get that picture in your head for one moment, and then you'll understand what Paul means in verse 4. He is God's servant for your good. Even a bad government is better than no government at all. At least there is a semblance of order. 
It's when, go- when there is no government, it, it, mankind descends into the abyss very, very uh, quickly. The fourth reason that he gives us that we are to obey is because there is a higher moral law. Now, this is a little tricky. Read verse 4. It says this, But if you do no wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, listen to me. Whenever the Bible refers to your conscience, you can be absolutely sure it's talking about a moral law. It's not talking about a man's law. It's not talking about somebody setting up speed limits or, or, or no swimming signs or things like that. He's talking about a higher law. He's talking about a moral law. Your conscience doesn't bother you because you broke man's law. Your conscience bothers you because you break God's law. So whenever you hear the Bible start referring to conscience, you immediately know it's dealing with a higher law, a a higher moral law. Paul wants us to understand that our submission to government does not depend on the government. It doesn't depend on the state. You're not sitting there thinking, well, that's, you know, are those laws right? Are those laws wrong? Are they, I don't respect them or I don't agree with them. He's calling us to submit because we are in the end accountable to him. We are accountable to a higher law than our state or our government. I'm sorry, our our, our federal government or our county. We are called to something higher than that. Listen, this is going to be hard for some of you to understand, and we'll talk about this next week. But it's not about, is it, do we live in a democracy or do we live in communism or do we live under a dictatorship? It doesn't matter. there's, There's no exceptions. He says, we obey God. We obey God. And we'll talk about that more next week. So these are the reasons we're called to submit to civil authority. Number one, because it's instituted by God. Number two, because to resist is rebellion against God. Number three, it's good for you. And number four, because it is a higher law. And he sums it up in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes, revenue to whom revenue, respect to whom respect, and honor to whom honor is owed. So here's the thing. Obey speed limits. Obey building codes. Obey buy your fishing licenses. Right? Hunt only in the season. Obey the bag limits. Register your tag every year. Park where you're supposed to. Obey the government. Okay? Obey the government. You may not like it. But I'll show you in a minute why it's so dangerous if you don't. Okay? Number two, does the command to submit include evil rulers? What do you think the answer is? (laughs) Absolutely, the answer is yes. He said it right there in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. We don't say, well, he's a good man. He must be from God. By the way, do you understand we disagree on that? Some people may look at our president and say he's a good man. Others say he's he's a bad man. Somebody look at our next president, whoever that may be. That's a good man, that's a bad man. We can disagree. It's got nothing to do with that. Every authority comes from God. There is no authority except from God. Good or bad, the fact that they are where they are is the will of God. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. Many of you know in the Bible a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king of Babylon. Okay? He didn't believe in God. He wasn't a Christian. I mean, he, he was a pagan. He worshipped pagan gods. And he came against Jerusalem, God's people, and he destroyed 
Jerusalem. But listen to what God said about him in Jeremiah 27, 6. He says, I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. My servant. By the way, that is the exact same term that Paul uses in tonight's verse, for he is God's servant. You see, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a man of God. He wasn't a child of God. He wasn't any of those things. But yet he was doing exactly what God needed him to do to fulfill his purposes. He was God's servant. Paul's using the exact same terminology. No matter who is in power, they are there because God has put them there in that place, in that time, to fulfill his purposes. Sometimes that, well, I've said it before, sometimes that purpose is to bless. Sometimes that purpose is to judge. But he's there because God put him there. What about Pontius Pilate, right? This is the man that sent Jesus to be crucified. This is the man that said, I I wash my hands of his blood. Jesus said to him, this is Pontius Pilate, the the Roman uh, uh, procurator. Jesus said to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. The only reason you're where you are is because God put you there. You can't argue with Jesus, right? I mean, that, we, we need to understand that. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody win an election and somebody say, well, that wasn't God's will. And I'm like, are you re- do you read your Bible? How do you come up with that? Of course it's God's will. Of course it is. Daniel 2.21 says this, He changes times and season, He removes kings, and He sets up kings. He brings them down and puts others up there. He brings them down and puts... That's God. Man doesn't create government. God does. Man doesn't sustain government. God does. Listen, Christians have, content, have lived throughout the, the, the millennia, the last 2,000 years. They have lived and continue to live under governments that forbid them to do or make them try to make them do the opposite of what the Bible commands. For example, if you live in Iran, if you live in China, if you live in North Korea, they all forbid the meeting together of Christians. Yet the Bible says in Hebrews 10, don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect to meet together. Yet these countries say, don't do it. So these these Christians are having to make decisions every day. How do I deal with that? How do I deal with that situation? Listen, there are rulers out there that kill Christians. There are rulers out there that are going to tax you and use your money for immoral purposes. There, there's rulers out there that can exile you and find you and shut your business down and put you in prison. That's all true. But it's also true that civil authorities, civil governments, are God's chosen instrument to govern the world of men. Okay? This may help you a little bit. It's kind of like marriage. Does everybody believe that marriage is ordained by God? Are all marriages good? No. Do people inside of marriage mistreat each other? Are they selfish? Are they... Government's the same. It's ordained by God. Doesn't mean all governments are perfect. Not all governments are good. There's they're, they're selfish, power-hungry people involved. But it doesn't change the fact that it's ordained by God. Number three. Why doesn't Paul list any exceptions? Now, let me say it again. Paul is a smart guy. He's a really smart guy. He knows there are exceptions. He knows that, but yet I'm sure he's sitting there. I can picture him sitting there writing that letter 
And he, he's writing it, and he says, oh, you should submit. He's wondering, I wonder if I should submit, put the, these exceptions. And no, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I mean, he, it had to be a conscious decision. And I want to know why. Why wouldn't he do that? Now, the problem is, is I can't read his mind. He doesn't come somewhere and say, hey, the reason I don't list any exceptions is because he never says that. But we know Paul. We have other letters from Paul. We know how Paul thinks. We know what's important to Paul. So we can venture a guess. I think one of the reasons that he avoids exceptions is because that's exactly what we want to focus on. You ever notice that? We don't want to see the big picture. We want to go straight to, oh, there's the exception. Let's, let's, let's see how I fit into that. And I, I just don't think that's, that's not what he wants. That's one reason. I think because he knows we want to focus on exceptions, so he just leaves them out. I think this is the bigger reason. Paul is much more concerned with things like humility and self-denial and trust in Christ than he is in life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Wow. No, I didn't get one amen out of that thing. Amen. He is much more concerned... Let me tell you, we're sitting here, and boy, I live in America, and I got the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and this is the democracy, and we got the Bill of Rights, and we got all this stuff, and Paul's over here saying, that is, set your mind on things above, not on things below. That's nothing. That's, that's meaningless in the scheme of things. I'm more concerned about your faith in Jesus. I'm, I'm more concerned about your humility. I'm more concerned about your self-denial. I'm, I'm more concerned about how you trust Christ than I am about those things. That's what matters. In the long run, that's, that's going to fall into the dustbin of history. But this, this is, is eternal. Let me put it another way. In Paul's mind, faith, things like faith and readiness to suffer are vastly more important infinitely more important than whether somebody's being treated well by their government. Now, we may not want to hear that. We get, it's all about, you know, we, we get all wrapped up in our rights and, and you, you know, you got all the... That's not even on Paul's radar. He's worried about this. He's worried about your relationship with him. He knows that's important. So he's just not concerned about those things at all. Let me tell you, the church in China, now listen to this. The church in China today is growing at an unprecedented rate, all under the boot of an oppressive government. And they're just growing like crazy. And yet right here in America, with all of our freedom, the church shrinks every single year. How can that be? I'll tell you how it can be. Why that happens? Because government has no control over the heart. Government has no control. You can give people vast amounts of freedom to worship and go to church and, and practice their faith, and the church shrinks. You can put them in the middle of a communist country where they, where they try to oppress them and hold them down, and the church will grow like wildfire. Government can't hold the church back. They can't make it grow, and they can't hold it back got nothing to do with the government. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're in a dictatorship. It doesn't matter if you're in, under communism. It doesn't matter if you're in a democracy. Listen, I'm glad I live in a democracy. I'm, I'm thankful that I live in a democracy. But I also don't fool myself that somehow you can legislate Jesus into people's heart. It just don't work. 
And if, that, if, this, if our country today is not proof of that, I don't know what is. Listen, the danger to our soul from unjust governments is nothing compared to the pride in our heart that kicks against submission. Let me say that again. The danger to our soul from an unjust government is nothing. Jesus said, don't, don't fear those who can kill your body. Fear the one who can take your soul. That's God, by the way. That's the one you fear. They, they, they can do nothing to me. Nothing. The danger to me is not from an unjust government. It's not from a leader like, like Nero. It's not from a, a, a government that's trying to legislate against my rights. That's not the danger to me. The danger to me is to have pride, so much pride, that I kick against submitting to that government. That's the danger to my soul. When God asks me to do that, and I say, I'm not doing it, that's where the danger lies. Listen, Jesus never promised His people a fair fight. Never. In fact, he promised the opposite. In Matthew 10, he said this, If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, Beelzebub, by the way, was the prince of demons. If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, Jesus said, If they call me the devil, what do you think they're going to call you? If they call me the son of God, the devil, what do you think they're going to call you? He, he never promised us that everything's going to be fair. Never promised us that at all. The main issue for us as Christians is not being treated fairly in this world. It's not about that, that we have our rights. It's not about that at all. The main issue is believing in Jesus. The main issue is humbling ourselves and denying ourselves for the glory of God and the good of others. So why no exceptions? Let me put it pretty bluntly, because I think Paul is much more concerned with the kingdom of God than he is with the kingdom of man. He's much more concerned with the kingdom of God than the kingdom of man. Now listen, next week we're going to look at these last three questions. Does God sometimes approve of us not submitting? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll give you several examples from the Bible where godly Christians re resisted uh, the government. I've already mentioned one when Peter and John were told by the, uh, the, uh, the government of Jerusalem, do not preach in Jesus' name. They walked right out the door and started preaching in Jesus' name because they said we have to obey God rather than men. We'll talk, I'll give you several examples of that. We'll look at this one. In what type of situations is civil disobedience the right thing to do? It turns out that civil di disobedience is right, but it always comes down to one thing. It always comes down. They all, every act of civil disobedience always has the same thing in common. And we'll talk about that next week. And then finally, we'll talk about what does, when you do disobey, when you do resist, what is allowed Christians? Can we, as I said earlier, can we take them to court? Can we carry a protest sign? Can we, uh, uh, you know, can we take up arms? We'll talk exactly about what's allowed to us as Christians. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you, first of all, uh, for this country because um, for whatever reason, it's here. And we were born into a free country. And we understand that even in this country, it's not the same for everybody. We get that. 
But Father, I just thank you that what, what makes this country so great to me is the freedom to spread the message of Jesus Christ. That I can go to Winn-Dixie or I can go to Walmart and I can tell someone about Jesus and I will not be arrested. That's what... We, we ship Bibles. We ship missionaries all over the world. That is a great and wonderful thing. So I thank you for that. I thank you for that privilege and that honor. But God, I ask you tonight that there's not a person here who will ever put their allegiance to their country above their allegiance to you. God, we, we belong to you. We are citizens of heaven. We have to live here. We have to work here. We have to marry here. We pay our taxes here. We get all that. But God, every single person in this room should have their eyes set on another city. We should have our eyes set on another country, another land. We are just passing through here for a short time until we get home. God, help us to act like good Christians while we're on the way. Help us to, to respect our government, to respect those in authority, to, to submit, to, to get rid of the pride, deny ourselves and submit, even when we don't like it, because that's what your word asks us to do. I pray for next week, Lord, as we come back and we tackle some, some tough questions. Um, I, I pray, Lord, that you'll be with us, that you'll give me wisdom to handle those in a, in a wise and biblical way. We, we thank you so much for all that you do. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.